is well known <laughs> what happened when the Jews were in the Midbar. Uh, it's been discussed repeatedly, but really what happened was you had this confrontation between Bilam and Barak and Klal Yisrael. And it's almost quite a bizarre thing because the entire, this, this war of, of values, of forces, took place completely unbeknownst to Klal Yisrael. Klal Yisrael were totally unaware of the fact that there was this adversary plotting their demise in a variety of different sophisticated spiritual ways. And he really could have done some extremely serious damage had there not been a large amount of divine intervention and the nation themselves were totally oblivious of it. They had no idea. The word used in connection repeatedly with Bilam is the word Vayikra which comes from the word Mikre. Mikre is a once-off event. It's happenstance. It's not intrinsic. It's not part of the thing. It just occurs. It happened to be. And um, this, this indicates a fundamental difference between <coughs> Bilam's relationship and the forces that he presents to the forces of Kedusha and ours. <coughs> the Balatanya says that, and we say every morning, the neshama you've given me is tahor. It's absolutely pure. The essence of who we are is purity. Anything we ever do will always be an externality of ourselves when it's, even if it's completely evil. It can never penetrate who we are. The essence of who we are is tahara, kedusha. What this can be compared to and the minute we start discussing a marshal, of course, it must involve a king who inevitably lives in a castle, which is almost always neighbored by a forest. And he's always sitting on a throne, supported by his faithful helper, Eagle. Um, so yeah, we have our, our king. Now he's, he's just moved into a brand new palace, which is actually for the first time in um, royal history. It's located on a small island um, in the Bahamas. Magnificent view of miles and miles of tranquil blue sea, white beaches, and the water so clear you can you can see even at great depths right 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 to the bottom. Um, this 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 fascinating palace has been made from natural substances but beautiful wood carved elaborate structures and in the center of this of this palace there's a king and the king's examining examining um, the work of his local royal launderer the launderer walks into the palace and he shows the king two shirts the king knows where these two shirts came from but to the untrained eye, they look identical. The one shirt is blotched and stained, black dark stains with patches of white. And the other shirt is blotched and stained, 
black stains with patches of white. The king calls in his local advisors and he says, Tell me, wise men, when these shirts are placed before you, can you differentiate between them? To which the wise men look carefully at the shirts and say, Sire, we see not the difference. Until one particularly wise man says, Your Majesty, I would like to I would like to share with you what I believe is the fundamental difference. And he picks up these two shirts and he examines it very closely. And he says, These two shirts, even though they appear to be identical, are in fact black and white. Black and white, said the king. Black and white, repeated the minister. What do you mean, sir? He showed that the one shirt was literally a black shirt with white stains. And you could see that the stains were, the whiteness was on the externality of the shirt. And the other one was a pure white shirt. But stains had crumpled up on its outer side. So too, says the Balatanya, is a Jew. A Jew is a white shirt. Everything he ever does is merely a stain but it never takes away the whiteness that exists within his essential being. <coughs> One of the primary goals and major motives of the Yetzirah is to sully and stain the shirt until the Jew himself thinks that his shirt is really black. One of the deepest, desperate moments a Jew can ever slip into is the loss of the faith of greatness that should possess us, even during our long Tachnun has been completed, Mr. Anonymous Man with a big purple shirt. Now, what happens is as far as how does the Yetzirah, how does the Koychas hope to influence a person to feel that he is a black shirt and not a white shirt? It's Bilamarasha. He realizes that if you try to uproot the Jewish Neshama, you don't go anywhere. It doesn't work. You are left completely powerless against the pure power of purity that the Jewish Neshama has. So what do you do? You try to darken the outside. And how do you do that? You seduce them. Well known the Medrash of what happened in the way Bilam succeeded. Bilam failed, didn't he? Well, yes and no. He failed in his direct full frontal attack against the Jews. He couldn't curse them, but he succeeded in manipulating them so they themselves would become self-destructive. Now, these are Jews, God-fearing men. They went to buy goods in the Midianite marketplaces walking through the marketplace the men were men who guarded their eyes and thoughts and they would go past an old woman dressed in rags and she'd be selling her wares she'd be saying I don't know what the currency of the time was something along the lines of which means four shekels for a pitcher, four shekels for a pitcher, which would be great. 
And as you get closer to her, seeing if this would be a, I mean, after, after all, wouldn't it be nice to bring back some Midianite trinkets home? Sounds like a great idea. So he'd go and so look at the, looking at the pitcher, at the jug, at the cud, and you'd hear a voice from another store coming out and saying, two shekels. Stein, 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 Shekel, Schnee, Shikalim for a cut. Oh, that sounds like a good deal. And you'd pop over to the second store, and who would be there? Miss Midian. Oh, yes, Miss Midian. Dressed voluptuously and saying, Well, how would you like to buy this bargain deal? But the truth is, you'd say, Come into my store, and I have so much more to offer you winking so she said well she said one shekel come on and she'd invite him in and when she was there she had shown this wide variety of different uh, beautiful artwork to buy from and she said well why are you here why, why not let's have a drink together brew him some coffee finest brazilian that invent brazil just for it and <coughs> She'd spice it up with a little bit of Kalua and he'd be having a drink with her and they'd get to know each other, have a bit of a discussion and one thing would lead to the other until she'd say, well, you know, why don't we just go and, you know, and be very suggestive. And to which this man who's now been completely seduced into the situation he could feel his powers of resistance fading. And she said, Oh, by the way, I have this fantastic little god. I just like you to worship. At this time, his overriding desires would be so overwhelmingly powerful that he'd actually submit himself to the idol of Baal And then, when he'd done that, he'd feel that he'd be so desperately blackened by sin that you'd lose any further restraint until he feels that well I've gone so low I can't get lower and that's how he'd fall into the depths of despair and that's how he'd not be able to recover himself from it contrast that to perhaps what the approach should have been there's an interesting mitzvah in the Torah of what's called Aishas Yafas Toya A man goes into war and again he's in a very vulnerable situation he's without wife and family and he's a soldier in the battlefield stressed in the tensions of battle having his life being threatened at every moment and he comes across an extremely attractive non-Jewish woman in the height of his conquest of a city what does he do? She attempts to seduce him. There's a surprising rule that the Torah says. Surprising, almost shocking, the Torah says. She's permitted to him. Non-Jewish. Not converted. Permitted to him. Permitted to him? The Torah explains why. It says, The Torah understands that the Yetzirah at this point in time couldn't resist that temptation. It's impossible. And for the Torah to outlaw it would be demanding more than the person could deliver. You can't resist the temptation at that point in time. 
and therefore what he can do is he can be with her but what he then has to do is bring her home with him and then she has to go through a whole process of conversion etc 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 I don't understand two situations seemingly overlapping but dramatically different so where does the difference lie? so Rabbi Rucham points out the difference lies in the following area how does a person relate to a moment of test? the deepest danger about being tested is not failing it's the perception of how you see yourself at the moment of failure imagine this person the men who went to war were the tzaddikim of the generation imagine this person after working years and years on himself learning at Mesilisashorim refining the finer nuances of himself and now he's stuck in a compromising situation with an attractive non-Jewish woman and he falls prey to his Yetzirah imagine how he thinks about himself he'd probably think of himself as a dirty, disgusting, how could I? And those thoughts would lead him to lose all sense of restraint because after all, what am I worth? That's the danger. The danger isn't falling. The danger is seeing yourself as a fallen. Says the Torah, what we'll do is we'll say, we understand that you've fallen. Let's create an approach to it. The minute you approach something and say, okay, I've fallen, these are the parameters. That's what I have to do. There's a mahalach. There's a way of dealing with it. You've removed yourself from the clutches of hopelessness. The point is not that we're not susceptible. We're highly susceptible. The point is how you view your susceptibility. Do you say, okay, I'm the kind of person that is with all my great and gavaldika milers and huge talents, but I'm human and I can fall. But if I fall, I will step up immediately. If you view yourself like that, so you have an approach of how to fall. Do you know that most martial arts revolve around how to fall? How to fall? But what do you mean? I'm not going to fall. I'm going to beat you into the ground. You have to learn how to fall. The art of living is not learning how to punch. It's learning how to fall because we're falling constantly the question is what happens when you fall if you fall and you say okay I'm defeated then you've lost now you understand tzaddik sheva po'amim yipoil v'kom a tzaddik falls seven times not that there's a tzaddik and if there's a bad tzaddik he falls seven times and gets up no a tzaddik is a person that falls and gets up falls and gets up he's a he knows how to fall the difference between a tzaddik and a rasha is not who they are it's if they know how to fall or not you have to learn how to fall. Exactly. If you don't know how to fall, so then you're not going to be able to get up. But if you learn how to fall, so then implied in your ability to know how to fall is how you can get yourself off the ground. Learning how to fall means that you don't get absolutely vanquished because you fell. You fall and you roll over and then you stand up again. You fall and you roll over and then you stand up again. And you fall and you roll over and stand up again. This is probably one of the most fundamental lessons we can learn. And the people who don't learn this are the people that land off completely. And not because they want to. The Gemara says that the life of a Russia is Mole Harotos. And the Balatanya says that's the kind of Russia that still has a prickled conscience. 
he still wishes he could be good. And you see the tremendous distraction of self that occurs when a person falls and then he rates himself as a failure and then he continues to fall and he eats himself up inside. But he feels that he can't get out of it simply because he doesn't know how to fall. There's nothing wrong with falling. Sadik! 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 Shiva po amim yipo! Boom! Get up! Boom! Get up! Boom! Life is about falling time after time after time. But if you know how to fall, you get up and you get back into it. And then you fall. And then you get up and you get back. And then you fall. And then you get up and, you, and then you fall. And then you fall. And then you fall. And then you fall. Now we're in a we're in a we're in a world where the powerful forces that stand to capsize us and cause us to lose our equilibrium are almost overwhelming. They're almost overwhelming. Um, the spread of sexual promiscuity has reached new levels. Even recently, I mean recently in the last three, four, five years, as the internet speeded up and there was no delay in download time and things became accessible on the moment and then the accessibility increased from desktop to laptop to phone, so now a person holds in his hand a base ozonus. He has a base ozonus in his hand. He's got a, a house of ill repute that he carries around wherever he goes. So the Gemara says, the Gemara says, If you take a person and you give him a new haircut, shy and put on the most exquisite aftershave, fill his wallet with gold and put him outside, a base of zonis, can he not sin? Is it possible? In fact, he will. In fact, he will. You've set up a situation that he will fall. He's going to fall. He's in a situation where he's going to fall. We're in a situation where the world is set up in such a way that it's very likely will fall. So you have to know how to fall. It depends how you see yourself. Depends how you see yourself. So if you're going to fall, you have to know how to fall. Avada, no one's looking to fall. Even the martial artist that works on falling, he doesn't like go to get beaten up and fall. You don't look to fall. But you're aware of the possibility. You're aware of the possibility of falling occurring. Don't look for it. 100%. Those of you who don't have to carry around the portable base of Zonus, don't carry around the portable Vavos. <laughs> yes. Could be that it's stomach, Tommy. <laughs> you have to be marked me base of Zonus, no? And you can say Brocha facing a base of Zonus, if face mission. But I'll call upon him, it means that we're in a very difficult world. We're in a very, very difficult world. And it's a scary thing. Now, the difficulties as follows <coughs> that always. With the physical world, the physical world is a mirage, it's an optical illusion. The nature of a mirage is as follows. Something that appears real until you get there and then experience it and it disappears into the desert air. Until you get there 
it's glorious and it's real as can be. And after you've arrived, you see it was just sand. That's called the optical illusions of this world. All the pleasures exist. They only ever exist optically, where your eyes can see them. The minute you experience them, the feeling is demoralizing. The person never finds the fulfillment that they seek. So they have to look further. They say the fulfillment lies there. So they hit another mirage. And they say, no, obviously it lies there. And the moral depravity sinks and 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 sinks. And it never reaches its level because it doesn't exist. It's an illusion. A person can't gain satisfaction from seeing and experiencing something which has no grasp in reality. So a person lives in a self-defeating cycle. But the nature of life is that you don't realize it until it's too late. And in a time scale, what happens is the more a person submits to his Yetzirah and to these parts of himself earlier on in his life, the more the time continuum works like this. The odds are stacked against the young. The more person indulges in his youth in the pursuit of mirages, the more he cripples his extended life. The more person resists the temptations in his youth, the more he facilitates his later life. I'll give you an example. Let's contrast a modern person struggling with the challenges of today. A person is not, let's say, it's not religious. And therefore he has no compunction to indulge in all the areas of physical pleasure. Which means he has no, no need for his conscience to stop him from indulging in every type of fantasy that he can. And in that sense, he pursues his body to its nth degree. Why limit himself to one partner when he can have many? That kind of lifestyle perpetuates itself, let's say, from the ages of 17 till 25, 30. By 30, so he's already kind of experiencing a sense of disillusionment. He hasn't had a relationship which is steady forever. And he's had experienced everything. And it's baroque now. And he's starting to be less attractive because his body is starting to decline. If he persists until he's 40, so now he becomes, from being the cool guy, he now becomes pathetic. An old man trying to live a young man's life. If he persists until he's 50, so then it becomes even more absurd. By the time he's 60, it's laughable. And by the time he's 70, he's a person that experienced a broken life and he dies in loneliness with nothing to show. Take the warrior that when he is 18 resisted temptations. When he is 22 he got married. Over the next 50 years he builds a relationship of depth and complexity with one woman. Together they bring into the world an entire family that he's able to derive pleasure from, enjoy, and as his family grows and his relationship matures, he develops a connection of closeness when him and his wife can experience a sense of togetherness and love 
that he's unparalleled. And he dies at the same age as his counterpart, 80, fulfilled, deeply rewarding life. Surrounded by children and grandchildren. Or the pathetic 70-year-old that reminisces about the time when he could still attract women. So in the timeline, the illusion of youth presents you with a short-sighted, myopic vision of what it's going to be. So what many people will think and say is, okay, well, I'll sow my wild oats whilst I'm young, and then I'll settle down. But you don't realize the damage that you do to yourself in doing that. Why cripple your potential relationships in the future with an unhealthy indulgence in the present? So we're in a, we're that, that's, our, that, that's a world. That's a world that we're fighting against. So we have to strengthen ourselves. So the Ramban says the most fascinating thing in his letter to his son. When he describes how a person should walk, he says the funniest thing. He says, I'll tell you how to walk around. Be humble. Your words should be soft. And your head should be bowed. And your eyes should look down on the earth. And your heart should be above. What does he mean? Your heart should be up there and your eyes should be down there? There's a symbiotic relationship that we know, that we all experience between the eyes and the heart. The heart is what I feel, what I experience. And the eyes are one of the most basic ways where we connect the external world with our internal world of experience. We see, we want, we want, we see. How should we walk around in life? We have to make sure that our life is Lamaila. Lamaila means we have to live a life which has more in the moment than just the moment. We have to experience life where the mundane experience of going through the motions of living doesn't become the standard format of our being. Uh, I'll give you an example of this because that's rather abstract. A person walk through a park and he can make his way. Let's say you want to go across the street and walk to the Makolet. Now is that beer? It's a 300 meter walk. You can walk there and you need to buy something in the Makolet because you're hungry. So you need to buy a snack bar. So you walk across the road and you go to the Makolet and you buy a snack bar and you come back. That's called an experience which is rooted purely in this world. The reason why you went there was you walked the walk to go get the thing in order to have enough food to sustain you. You can take that same, take that same experience and amplify it to a new de degree. You can walk, and as you walk and as you leave the building, you can smell the fragrant, fragrant air of Jerusalem and appreciate the fact that you've got lungs to breathe. And those lungs to breathe allow you taking a deep breath, and every breath is a miracle of physiology, and you feel a sense of gratitude to Hashem. So you've taken a step and a breath, and you can understand the miracle of movement. The amount of neurological events that have to occur so you can put one foot in front of another <coughs> are astonishing. And as you walk further and you go between the trees and you understand that from one tiny seed, this gigantic colossal structure evolved. It's absolutely astonishing. And as you see the dappled shapes of the shade upon the path in front of you, 
you appreciate the aesthetics of the beauty of nature and then you go to the makolet and you see a transaction whereby you're able to help out someone else they're able to help out you and you stand the notion of what a Kenyan is the world is transformed by the kind of meaning you can milk out of mundane act oh you can go to the makolet and buy something imagine if you perpetuate that life forever what is your life? stayed boring at best could be worse it could be depressing and depraved however if you charge your life with the connection something above it <laughs> you live in seventh heaven vital exciting vibrant filled with simcha sachayim that's called your heart is above you have to be careful though you have to look down why do you have to look down because your eyes are powerful my friends and they give you what's called many, many opportunities for optical illusions. And then you get seduced by those optical illusions and then your heart descends into the ground and then you live in the world and then you live a bland and seeming attractive but ultimately depressive existence. And that's something we have to chew over, mull over as we move forward in time and as we see the world in a certain sense completely crumbling around us in morality. We have to make a stand. We have to make a stand. We have to fight. We have to fight a war which preserves the spirit of purity. And fighting that war is a war of self. Ezehu gibor hakrivish es yitzray. The ultimate battle is not fought on the outside. The greatest warrior is the one that has the strength to conquer himself. And that's the ultimate ba battle. And you have to realize, you're going to fall. But you have to learn how to fall. And then you get up, and then you fight again. Ezehu gibor and koevish es yisrael. Bam, koevish es yisrael. Bam, koevish es yisrael. But it's a war. And if you don't fight, you lose. And if you lose, you lose. Not that Hashem loses. You think it makes an inch of difference in your brain so long? Yeah, you do a chait, you don't do a chait. Go on it. Im chotasa my tifal boy, you make a sin, doesn't do it. Im sodakta my titin loy, the pasuk in your said, you do, you big tzaddik. What do you say, Abishta? Cornish. You tzaddik, your Russia makes a difference to him. Who doesn't make a difference to you? To you. You're the only one that makes a difference to you. To you in this life, in this world. You know what Rebbechaim Velozhna said? Was it Rebbechaim Velozhna? Not clear. Someone said, of high repute. They asked him, and they said, you know, they heard that if you support a person who's in learning, you get the Torah that he learns. You literally get that Torah. You understand things in Olam Haba like he understood them. So he said, sure, you get the Olam Haba, he said, but the person who's learning Torah, the person that supports him doesn't get the Olam Hazeh. You don't get to live that full life. That full life. That's all we're trying to do. Ah, the ecstasy of being involved in a life which is pregnant with purpose in every moment and every second it has a different dimension to it it's not the staid or Khalila depraved but it's the elevated the deep the rich the wealthy valuable moment ah each second in time each experience in space how precious can we really afford to lose that ask me can we really afford it? Can we really afford it? Can we really afford it?